know, I, I remember going to the Cinerama Dome and watching Lawrence of Arabia and having the intermission. You got up and had a moment to talk about what you had just seen. And the whole thing was an event. When you see the grain of 70, you see the color of 70, like the wide shot inside the barn and the close-ups of the faces, it's beautiful. The decision by the filmmakers to shoot Baraka on 65 millimeter negative was not a purely technical one. There is an immediacy and a connection with the audience when you screen a 70 millimeter print of this film or of any film that surpasses 35 millimeter, you're suddenly immersed in the image. You're less aware of the fact that you're watching a print or a film and you connect on a, a more emotional level with what you're watching. One of the very first directors whose work I began to follow obsessively was the British director David Lean. I can't quite recall what was the first film of his that I managed to really become obsessed with. I think it might have been Dr Zhivago followed by uh, Ryan's daughter but whatever one it was it really sparked a passion in me for what I would discover to be the 70mm format and I seem to recall and I don't say this as a kind of retrospective smug hipster but I recall when I was 16, 17, 18 being interested in films that my friends at the time weren't. Everyone was obsessed with the likes of Pulp Fiction and Trainspotting, and I did like these films. It was just that I seemed to gravitate towards older, more epic works. And this interest in epic cinema came with me to university, and I remember in particular, it was towards the end of my first year where we went to the showroom cinema in Sheffield where we had most of our lectures and we had a screening of the film Exodus. Now it wasn't in 70mm even though it had been filmed in 7mm. It was a 35mm blow up. But I remember in my time at university I would seek out modules that had epic films in them and I've always associated these types of film, a very specific period in my life. And it was one where I was very, very happy, I seem to recall. And it's strange because when I went to university, I remember for the first few months being dreadfully homesick. Um, I, I don't have any kind of qualms about admitting it. And it took me time to really tune into university and the university way of life, because it is a life experience that's quite different from what you've had before. And I, I think looking back, you're very young when you're 18 and then you suddenly leave home and you're suddenly fending for yourself when you're living I went from living in a very small village in Kent to living in a major city and it was something of a culture shock but films were something that I think really helped me through that time and they helped me make friends and have discussions about film and I would always try and get my housemates or friends into things like Lawrence of Arabia and Dr Zhivago, Ben-Hur and the like. And although I seem to be in the minority, it didn't really matter because this newfound passion had, I think, ignited in me something which was perhaps lacking when I first went to university. And it's something which has stayed with me through my entire life. 
on every single format that's come out from DVD to Blu-ray, there's a series of films that I always try and pick up. Normally it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I remember the first time I saw that um, in a widescreen DVD and then the Blu-ray and now the UHD. But it was these 70mm films that I would always seek out. They always seem to be having uh, rather amazing restorations done and people would kind of go back and restore them, especially in the likes of Florence of Arabia. So every year I'm going to do a 70mm film festival and I appreciate there's only a finite number of 70mm films made and I'm going to pick 10 films and do and do short reviews of them. Hopefully uh, there might be a few in there that you've never heard of before and decide to seek out. And this has been an interesting process for me as well because and I also decided that I didn't want to just pick films like Ben-Hur and Lawrence Arabia for this first edition. I really wanted to cast my net as far as I possibly could and seek out 70mm films from all around the world. And it is in this department that I do have to admit I had some frustrations. Because of course the Soviets invented their own version of 70mm, something called Sovscope. And it was very hard to find copies of films that had been made in this format and the DVDs that do exist are for the most part extremely expensive um, and despite the fact that there are some on DVDs and I did manage to seek some of them out the visual presentation I thought at times was almost VHS in quality and although I was limited in this regard I did manage to seek out a couple for this edition. Now the other thing about 70 minute films is obviously we have the soft scope but even the American studios had various different types of 70mm film. So we had Todd AO, MGM Camera 65, Super Panavision 70, Ultra Panavision, Dimension 150, and so on and so on. So I wanted to also pick films that were shot in each format. And for the most part, it was a lot easier to find these films on Blu-ray and DVD. Um, I will also, when I write up the notes for this, I will provide links to these films so you can hopefully get hold of the best copies of them. So I wanted to mix things up a little bit. And also, as this was going to be the first edition, I wanted to hopefully try and find a few films that I had never seen before. Some of which I'm ashamed to admit, and I'm awful at this, but I do hoard films and never watch them. Um, it's something I am... Uh, addressing at the moment and I'm sure we all do it we buy films and when we don't watch them and I had a stack of blu-rays of 70 millimeter films that I had never watched so I thought it'd be a good time to do something like this so I can kind of feel less guilty about constantly buying blu-rays and never watching them so with all that being said I chose 10 films and I do think I had a pretty decent mix and rather than watch them in chronological order, I decided I would plan the order in which I watched them on to make things a little more varied. And it's fair to say, I think overall, the results were mixed. There were definitely in there two stone cold classics that I had never seen before. One of which has actually entered my top 10 films of all time. And there were some surefire duds and some interesting, if somewhat flawed efforts so, with all that being said, the festival kicked off with John Frankenheimer's 1966 
Grand Prix. You have to remember that at Monte Carlo, because of the nature of the circuit, you shift gears over 2,600 times during the race. That's an average of once every three seconds. No reason to expect gearbox trouble. On the other hand, I suppose potential problems are in the back of your mind all the time. I've driven this course six times before, and the way I see it, I've only got three big problems today, and that's two Ferrari starting ahead of me and uh, my own teammates got started. Well, um, actually, walking the course is just about the last thing I do on the morning of a race. It's become a bit of a thing with me. I do a lot of thinking, collecting my thoughts about how I run the race, all that sort of thing. Of course, um, it originated with my brother, Roger, you know. He used to do the same thing. As a matter of fact, before I started racing myself, I often used to walk the course with him. The funny thing about Roger, you know, the day he was killed, he hadn't walked the circuit for some reason or another. I suppose I'm rather superstitious about that. Okay, so I kicked sad to kick things off with John Frankenheimer's 1966 film Grand Prix. Now, this was filmed in Super Panavision 70mm, which was the format that the Cinerama company adopted after getting rid of its way too expensive three strip process. And I initially was quite hopeful for the film. I really enjoyed the opening credit sequence by Saul Bass. And I was ready for some high octane sensory overload action and what you get with Grand Prix is quite frankly half a film because when this film is on the track it is an absolutely incredible film to watch. It is however when anyone opens their mouth that the film becomes very much a complete slog. Now obviously it has a huge international cast. We have James Garner, Yves-Marie Singh, Yves Montard and Tarissio Mifuni heading things up with the various plots and subplots. Yves-Marie Saint plays a journalist aghast at the dangers being taken by the races and of course she falls for the grizzled Montard who is looking to end his career and has become somewhat jaded by it. Then there's James Garner playing Pete, a reckless renegade who ends up signing for Mifuni's new mob with former teammate Scott recovering from a crash that Pete caused. Pete, of course, does the decent thing whilst his former teammate and friend is recovering. He starts shagging Scott's girlfriend, the model Pat, played by the incredible Jessica Water. As soon as Scott has recovered, he's back out fighting against Pete for the Drivers' Championship, with another plot going on as to who's going to win Jessica's affections off the racetrack. Yep, there is melodrama here, and it has one huge flaw, and that is this. Grand Prix is so very fucking boring. Are you going to the palace party tonight? I wasn't invited. I invite you. There are a lot of parties tonight, aren't there? Yes. Is that the usual thing after a race? Of course. And I can assure you that if you don't come to the palace party tonight with me, you will be missed. And this man's daughter, will he be missed too? I don't understand. Do you know Stardart? No, but I find it difficult to understand how this sort of thing can be going on. Celebrations. When a man lies in a hospital, possibly crippled for life. 
Chère mademoiselle, if you were dead, it would be the same. More subdued, perhaps, the same. And apparently it doesn't affect you at all. None of you. If we saint as Louise plays almost the exact same character she was in Exodus, a cipher through which we can explore morality, but those blasted feelings keep getting in the way, why has she become so invested in falling in love with her new man, Jean-Pierre, played by Montard? What could possibly happen to him as this driver enters the later day of his career and just happens to find true love once and for all. The central Pete, Pat and Scott love triangle feels totally forced and emotionless. They don't all, none of them seem like particularly nice people and all they do is be gittish to each other. I really couldn't give a toss about any of them to be brutally honest with you. Where is she? Forget her. Where is she, Jeff? I don't know. I want her back, you know. Fool. Jeff, you've never understood her. I know you think she's frivolous, incapable of any kind of understanding, but you're wrong. It's just that she hates what I do. I think she still loves me, you know. Hard as that may be for you to understand. Trouble is, she's got to persuade herself that she doesn't. I worry about what she might do, trying to convince herself of that. At least Louise and Jean-Pierre's story seem vaguely plausible, and Yves Montard is of course so fucking cool, and you can imagine the pair being quite happy together enjoying romantic walks out in Monaco. Everyone else is just horrible, Pete's a twat, Scott's boring and Louise is just annoying. Whenever the film tried to convince me that these relationships were important, my eyelids would be weighted down by how utterly dull it all was. What's Odd is how none of the actors are bad on their day, but instead they simply don't have the material with which to inject their characters to anything resembling convincing inner feelings and emotion. There are no moments between the characters in these scenes that would indicate Frankenheimer is doing anything other than just shooting the script as opposed to directing and working the performances out of his cast. It is just so forced and predictable, yet to a degree I can forgive the shortcomings of Grand Prix because this is visual spectacle at its most impressive. I don't have a particular interest in Formula One, but I do love documentaries about it and I can never make up my mind whether or not I believe it's actually a sport or not. But one thing that does amaze me is the speed and the skill of it all. The film used contemporary Formula One drivers to perform much of the driving and the erases are incredible feats of camera work and editing and never once did I find myself questioning the authenticity of what I was seeing. In one way we see a camera mount on the car turn from the steeped corner to the driver and it was such a simple movement it was strangely exhilarating seeing it come together on screen. Well, none of us like Monza very much. It's a damn fast and when he runs so close together it requires fantastic concentration and rather special skills. Uh, Slipstreaming, for instance. At speeds reaching 180 miles an hour, a race car is making a big hole in the air. And as the car goes through, the air rushes back into the hole and creates a hell of a draft. A draft strong enough to pull a following car along at, oh, 10 miles more than his usual top speed. Yours is the last car in a bunch. You can get a terrific tow. You can back way off the gas pedal and maintain the same speed. Then you can put your foot down, 
pull out of the slipstream and maybe overtake uh, two, three cars at once. The only thing to do here is to drive just as fast as you know how and hope your car doesn't break. The sheer width of the Super Panavision image and the tarmac whizzing by is at times utterly electrifying. And it is here, I think, where the film does have to shine. And certainly, I believe the film captures the visceral thrill of Formula One, the noise from the crowds. At times, it is simply jaw-dropping stuff. And it is where Frankenheimer shines as a director. Yet the fundamental issue with Grand Prix is that it struggles to juxtapose this with what is happening on the track and what is going on off it. Ron Howard's rush largely gets this bang on, part in fact because it was based on a true story, where Grand Prix feels like a film appealing to two sexes, high octane stuff for the boys and lovey-dovey nonsense for the girls. And of course that is obviously a rather simplistic way of looking at it, but it does rather feel there are two films in Grand Prix and simply put, what we witness never really comes together as a satisfying whole. I did not really like the Mauricio soundtrack. Indeed, he is a composer who I have to be brutally honest with you, the more of his work I listen to, I have never really found myself going back to his work. And I do listen to soundtracks a lot, but with the exception possibly of Lawrence of Arabia, I don't really find myself going towards his work. And here I found the music was a bit of a distraction, which coupled with my frustrations kind of made Grand Prix a bit of a slog to get through. It was just about saved by its racing scenes. And it, it has to say, I have to say again, it's, it's some of the most impressive footage of motor show sport ever captured. The fact, I think, that the coverage we see now of Formula One resembles this, I think, is a testament to that. And it's even more frustrating because most of the actors in it are so talented. It's just fundamentally let down by this rather dull and predictable screenplay. Yet, after all that, I probably would watch Grand Prix again just for those racing scenes and the sheer spectacle of it. And I can definitely recommend getting hold of the the Warner Brothers Blu-ray, it's widely available in America. In England, it's an exclusive to HMV and FOP, but this is a really loud film. And the the sound, if you've got a decent surround sound, then I, I would certainly suggest you crank it up. And the image quality as well was absolutely fantastic. Um, it was obviously taken from a very um, clean print. But overall, yeah, this was a slight disappointment to the festival, but there were positives for sure to take away from Grand Prix. I don't think you have to be a fan of Formula One to really enjoy the film. I think if you're just a kind of fan of film, then there is something here I think you will be able to enjoy. So from the glamorous world of Formula One, I decided to mix things up and take a look at a director whose 
arguably his only film in 70mm would be his most iconic and most revered and I decided to pick Jacques Tati's Playtime. Playtime was his film that would have the largest budget and complete creative control to realise his life's work. Tati had grown tired of the Mr. Hulot character and decided to move him away from the centre narrative to instead make a more generalised film that would function as an opportunity to examine the absurdities of modern urban living. And it doesn't take long to reveal Tati's intentions with Playtime. There is, I believe, a theme running through his films that is a sense that modernity comes at a price with automation and processing, clean lines and straight angles, the modern world is a baffling one in which humans have become increasingly out of touch with the natural and indeed more simplistic world that has gone before. His framing device in playtime comes in the form of a busload of American tourists coming into the city whilst Mr. Hulo tries to not destroy a restaurant and simply get from one building to another. He doesn't use close-ups and mid-shots, preferring to utilise the camera as wide as possible, using the foreground, the middle ground and far off the screen to create intricate visual gags that sometimes only become apparent on a third or fourth screening. I think it's worth noting as well that despite being shot in 70mm, this isn't a wide film. He actually uses the format for its height, so it doesn't have the kind of the visions that are sort of the Panavision style scope, its scale is in its height. And the format really allows Tati to almost write his own cinematic language. Whereas any other director would use cuts and edits, Tati, through his use of blocking and staging, lets your eye follow the action through scenes in one take. It's a wholly unique and inventive way of telling stories. We are used to a certain form of film grammar, and Tati dispenses with all this in favour of his, his own unique directional style. People often mistake his films as being silent, but here I was reminded the importance of sound and how integral it is to his working with the visuals to complement what he is trying to achieve. The use of repetitive sounds or an odd noise that suddenly draws your attention is vital in navigating this cinematic experience. And on this viewing of the film, the humour of it became even more apparent to me. People walking in the background in a regimented robotic fashion, the cardboard cutout extras frozen in time and mute colours of grey that kind of reminded me of every feeling I have on a Monday on my way to work, especially in the grey, bluey hue of winter. It's a shame Tatty wasn't alive today, I thought, watching the film. He would have had a field day lampooning people dodging lampposts and trams and each other as they stare zombie-like into their phones. And Playtime captures this everyday madness that if you stay in one place for a few minutes, you slowly begin to notice. Couples talking, people not noticing other people. Just recently, I almost walked into someone who was walking along the road reading War and Peace. It is a kind of a crazy world out there once you scratch the surface, I think. And Playtime is directed and planned beyond comprehension, but it somehow manages to feel completely organic when you relate it to your own experiences. 
and it's as if you are standing at times just watching on the side of the street. It's a very voyeuristic film and at times actually surreal. At other times as well it could be completely ludicrous. But the simple thing I kept taking away from this screening is just how fun playtime is. It is such a welcome tonic to everything that I have been watching recently and was a variable lesson in just how creative one can be with a single camera setup. It's clear that Tati is taking swipes at contemporary culture, the film obviously being made in the 1960s. The grey colour palette is an obvious visual metaphor but to a degree he's right. Playtime never becomes preachy or overly angry. It's far too charming to ever do that. And it's not to say it's perfect, it is a tad too long and the film's major set piece at the restaurant felt like it was going on way past and was actually necessary. But the explosion of joy and colour at the end reminded me of just how sweet natured Tati can be. He's clearly a romantic and it's his world view. And it may or may not have ever existed in reality, but somehow he's managed to convince me that it did and there is an underlying joy to the one that we actually live in. It's a beautiful film too, and it is the jewel in the tatty crown. He was given all the money he needed and the world's greatest film format, and the result is every bit as spectacular as one could hope. And there's also something slightly comforting to know that the next time I watch it, I'm pretty certain I will discover something new to admire and appreciate. It's a film that makes you look at the world a little different and in the best possible way. Now Playtime's had a number of Blu-ray releases um, from BFI, Studio Canal and Criterion. I do actually own them all. I had a look at most of them. I couldn't really see any differences between the two. Um, the version I actually watched was the BFI version, but they're all absolutely um, brilliant. I think the sound quality is great. So. Yeah, I cannot recommend enough picking this up and try and watch it on the biggest film, um, on the biggest screen that you possibly can. Um, and if there's ever a uh, actual cinematic uh, screening of it, um, do go and watch it. I was lucky enough to see it many years ago um, projected and uh, it's a film I'll treasure my entire life. To me, at least, it's timeless. So Playtime kind of got things back on track from the slight disappointment that was Grand Prix. So next up was another change of direction for this 70mm festival and I decided to go with one of my favourite films of all time and I have to confess it wasn't until I did some research on this film quite recently I, that I actually found out it was a 70mm film and it is of course Disney's Sleeping Beauty. In a faraway land long ago lived a king and his fair queen. Many years had they longed for a child, and finally their wish was granted. A daughter was born, and 
they called her Aurora. Made in 1959, this was the first feature film to be made in the Super Technorama 70mm process. Um, it was also presented at several um, Cinerama venues. And other films that would be made in this process include Spartacus, El Cid, Zulu and The Black Cauldron to name but a few another Disney film in fact. But it's interesting to me that Disney making films in scope anyway, they had done it with The Lady and the Tramp and I think I would love the idea of seeing Sleeping Beauty projected in 70mm. Sadly it did have a number of um, re-releases over the years and I've, I've never got to see it so for the time being we'll have to go with the Blu-ray. In truth I don't even know where to begin praising film if you pause any moment during the running its running time you will be greeted with on on screen before you a work of genuine art the animation here is for me has never been equaled and in the widescreen format and a perfectly produced blu-ray sleeping beauty looks incredible What does she want here? Shh. Well, quite a glittering assemblage, King Stephen. Royalty, nobility, the gentry, and... Oh, how quaint. Even the rabble. I really felt quite distressed at not receiving an invitation. You weren't wanted. Not what? Oh, oh dear, what an awkward situation. Which makes it even more surprising that Sleeping Beauty was not a hit upon its initial release with both audiences or critics. Indeed, it seems doubly cruel that, due to its financial failure, many members of the animation department that actually made it were made redundant. And in time and its subsequent re-releases, it would become a huge hit for Disney and was also the first film in the Disney back catalogue to be given a Blu-ray release. I actually love the film. I think it's dark. It's also very funny, but it, and it really embodies the Disney ethos. But in the age of Me Too, it has also become problematic. You see, there is a moment where the prince kisses Sleeping Beauty, and the fact that she is actually asleep has led some people to to suggest that Sleeping Beauty actually promotes a form of rape, certainly non-consensual kissing. And I really do think this is an incredibly problematic direction that film culture has gone in. And it's indicative of where we are as a culture in general. As I was watching Sleeping Beauty, I was, I was captivated in every possible regard. Nothing in it is offensive. Nothing in it is problematic. But I have to confess, my viewing was somewhat marred by this type of reactionary nonsense. And you can get an idea by watching it through the eyes of one of these cultural Luddites that you begin to get an unfortunate and rather disturbing idea of how they turn everything into a joyless exercise in fake outrage. And I did something which I don't normally do with a lot of films, which is I watched Sleeping Beauty, went to bed, and when I woke up, the first thing I did was went upstairs and watched it again. And this time I just sat back and simply soaked it all up and the result was an absolute joyous exercise in the sheer brilliance of film. 
it is a timeless classic in every sense of the word. And I think part of that is because it is just a sweet, innocent film. I think people trying to read too much into it really are somewhat missing the point. It was made by artists wanting to bring a fairy tale to life and they do this magically. There are so many scenes and sequences that make you laugh, genuinely amaze you. And the, what I love about hand-drawn imagery like this is that there's a sense that you get a sense that the images that you're seeing appear fleetingly in front of you from the page to the screen. And I, I don't know, it, it for, for me, it captures a kind of magic of human endeavour, of human creativity in these brief little moments. And of course, when you put them all together and you play them, you get these wonderful animated symphonies. And the level of creative endeavour and talent and skill, I think, is unsurpassed. In, in, a, in a film going experience and sure of course you know that's you, you can marvel at films like Lawrence of Arabia and, and, and all that and this is I think it's a different experience that you get with hand-drawn animation there's just something so intimate and it's a good reminder of just how impressive human beings can be creatively and it, I, I always think back to kind of I think it says something a lot about the kind of like our species you know when we, we see kind of like drawings on rocks and this sort of made by people thousands of years ago and to me animated films are an evolution of this of this idea of kind of capturing the world around us and interpreting it in in in, in the ways that we do and I, I i could watch sleeping beauty on repeat it is i think it's this screening of it i think has really cemented it in my own psyche as being one of my favourite films. And as I understand from some of the research that I could do on the film, there is one remaining 70mm print of this. I don't know that it's given many screenings with it, but I would. it's on my bucket list, I think, for things that I want to see in my life, because I, I can't imagine seeing the film projected onto, onto a huge screen, I, I think would be a generally thrilling experience. But yeah, Sleeping Beauty, the Blu-ray as well for this um, is absolutely fantastic. So it's a, one of the formats best. I certainly think it's the best release that Disney have ever put out. So that was Sleeping Beauty. So up next was the Best Picture Oscar winner West Side Story, filmed in Super Panavision 70mm. I had never seen Robert Wise's classic and frankly on the clips I had seen I wasn't sure if I was going to really enjoy it. Well how wrong I was. The film was a surprise and of course I know the story of West Side Story, it's basically Romeo and Juliet on the streets of New York, but I was not prepared for some happy 
cheesy remake, this is more Martin Scorsese than something like Grease. The film frames its love story between two rival gangs, the Jets led by who are a white gang led by Riff and the Sharks, a Puerto Rican gang led by Bernardo. The rivals battle out on the streets for supremacy in which is a clearly racially motivated conflict. The police try to keep things in order but the racial divide between the two makes conflicts unavoidable. Into this come Tony and Maria, Maria being Bernardo's younger sister and Tony a signed up member of the Jets and founder member. Now you listen to me, all of you. You hoodlums don't own these streets. And I've had all the rough house I'm gonna put up with around here. You wanna kill each other? Kill each other. But you ain't gonna do it on my beat. Are there any questions? Yes, sir. Would you mind translating that into Spanish? <laughs> Get your friends out of here, Bernardo. And stay out. Aside from the fact it didn't take too much to work out where all this was going, I was mesmerised by West Side Story. Rob Wise and Director of Photography Daniel Fapp present this film as a bright technicolour affair. It has a cheery air to it, almost nostalgic in capturing its sense of place and time, despite being set in the contemporary. And yet West Side Story very quickly shows its true colours. The feud between the gangs is beyond reconciliation and is one filled with racial slurs and social anger. The Jets and the Sharks are fighting a race war on the streets of New York, with each seemingly uninterested in forming a multicultural society. Marie and Tony represent a kind of future, one which is commonly between the groups can be found the basis for improved in relations. Only it's not going to happen here. These groups hate each other and that is the end of it. The film rushed by in a breeze for me. I really enjoyed the, the music, the gorgeous widescreen photography and the preened good looking charms of the cast. It had a romantic heart to it when there was gorgeous songs but a hidden danger in those concealed switchblade and ever present threat of violence erupting. It never lets you get too safe within its glossy frame and more than once I've snapped out gawping at the aesthetics of it back into the murder and violence. This Blu-ray 2 is a complete treat with great picture and audio and it has the aching again once to see this film in 70mm to see it really done justice. It's a wonderful world if you'll only take the time to go around it. Are you formally challenging me to undertake a journey around the world in 80 days? <laughs> I say this is absurd. Gentlemen, I have on deposit at Baring's Bank the sum of 20,000 pounds, and I'm willing to wager any or all of it upon the same contention, namely that I can complete a tour of the world in 80 days. <laughs> So, there was bound to be a dud in this festival, and boy did I pick one in the form of Around the World in 80 Days. I chose the film because it was the first 70mm feature film shot in the Todd Ayo widescreen format. This was a colossal production by Todd Ayo developer Michael Todd to showcase the format that would be able to show off every technical aspect of the format from its huge screen and incredible soundtrack. By choosing Around the World in 80 Days, I think he was trying to stick for a kind of fairly safe film. It's a comedy adventure romp and I think to a degree his faith in the film was well placed. It was a colossal hit. 
even picking up Best Picture at the Oscars that year. And given the scale of the production, it's not see it's not hard to see why, as a producer, he would take the gong home. There is another issue with Around the World in 80 Days, though, and that it is absolutely dreadful. Now, we all know the story of Jules Verne's Phileas Fogg trying to circumnavigate the world in 80 days to fulfil a bet, and one could see how this would be able to showcase the format so spectacularly. But for me, it is terribly dated. I couldn't even enjoy the film on its terms. You've had a rather speckled career, I see. Professor of gymnastics? Yes, sir. Wash. No demonstrations, please. Trapeze artist, fireman, chimney sweep. Amazing. How did you come to England? In a closed basket, sir. I skate. From what? Women, sir. A ladies' man, huh? Well, there are no women in this household. Now, my conditions are strict, and my timetable never varies. When I say breakfast at 8.24, I do not mean at 8.23 or at 8.25. Yes, sir. Do you have a watch? Oh, yes, sir. It's probably wrong. David Niven as Phileas Fogg was mildly amusing at times, along with sidekick Patsy Partown, the comedy relief apparently, and the pair set off on their adventure. Now the, the film soon becomes a series of capers as they navigate the madness of the world's cultures. Shirley MacLaine, an actor who I have never really enjoyed, turns up at some stage, and in a way she kind of reminds me of a tatty casino somewhere in Nevada, and she joins the group as this jaunty tale jags on and on, and I know it's important to consider context, and no doubt over the years humour has changed, but good humour is timeless, and this is not good comedy at all. It's jovial, and it's supposed to be fun, and judging by how the film was received, it certainly found a wide audience. But I don't think it's aged well at all. I found its tone to be out. I couldn't find a way to simply appreciate it. There was no dramatic tension, and I didn't engage with the characters on any level. But as an experience, it felt more like a travelogue type of film that Disney would use to display in somewhere like the Epcot Centre. And I think in the way that was kind of the point, the film's narrative literature background just provided a good way of Todd to get the film out there, to get it around the world and to show audiences perhaps something they had never seen before, which I dare say it does. In short though, it was a chore to get through and I didn't care for any of it. And yes, we're supposed to look at context and it's something that's always worth considering and also the film's place in film history. But to me, it was a massive dull spectacle and it functions better as a cinematic relic than it does a bona fide classic. Oh, beloveds, oh, men of the desert, I am the Mahdi, the expected one. In a vision, the Prophet Muhammad has instructed me let mountain and desert tremble. Let cities shudder and turn in fear of all those miracles to come. This is how it must be in Khartoum. Are these bulletins from Khartoum true? I was sent to Khartoum to assess the Egyptian capacity to deal with the uprising. I assessed it as nil. Send Gordon to Khartoum. Gordon, I cannot and will not send military forces up the Nile. But I admit Khartoum cannot be left to its fate without some gesture. And when the Mahdi floats me down the Nile, the government will assume a pained expression and say to Her Majesty, we sent Gordon, we did the best we could. Precisely. 
attack now, holy person. There is no more time. It is the moment. Where the Nile divides, their mighty conflict explodes across the Cinerama screen. Charlton Heston as Gordon, summoned by his country to defend Khartoum. Lawrence Olivier as the Mahdi, summoned by a vision to destroy it. Richard Johnson, Ralph Richardson, in Khartoum. So my next film was really the reason why I'm here doing this 70mm film festival in the very first place. Because when I was at university um, back 20 years ago now, which seems slightly um, frightening to say so, I did a course in something that was called Cinema and Empire. And one of the films that was shown on it was Cartoon, directed by Basil Dearden. And it really surprised me. Um, I seem to recall, I think it was shown on 35mm at Sheffield Hallam University, but now Khartoum was filmed in the Ultra Panavision 70mm format and it's made in 1966 and the next film that would be made in this would be Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight and I hadn't seen it since that first screening and I have to say that going back to Khartoum was um, a, a, a real delight. I, it's a really interesting film and it's one that's really I think quite relevant. It stars Charlton Heston as the titular Charles Gordon. If, if anyone who ever visits England, um, if you go into any kind of major city, you will notice there are a lot of Khartoum roads and streets named after uh, Gordon. He was something of a um, an icon at the time when this incident occurred. And the story revolves around Charles Gordon being dispatched by the British Prime Minister Gladstone, played by Ralph Richardson in the film, um, to Sudan to confront an Islamist army led by the Muhammad Ahmed, a self-proclaimed Mahdi or saver of humanity. And he kills a unit of Egyptian soldiers and then turns his eye towards Khartoum where he begins to march. Gordon is dispatched to reinforce British interest in the sun and to quell this uprising. Only he's not supposed to be there officially, moreover as a kind of presence to appease public opinion on the matter. The locals consider him a saviour and he soon starts to reinforce the city and negotiate a police plan with the Mahdi who despite respecting Gordon believes he is on a religion mission and plans to invade the city and murder those inside. The government are forced to send a relief column as Gordon refuses to leave and decides to fight the Mahdi and despite a heroic stand he is beheaded as the city falls. Now Gordon was immortalised in British culture with statues and roads named after him in virtually every town in England. Yet this story is slightly problematic for the modern culture as a white man as part of a colonial Britain fighting an Islamic extremist and the locals idolise and worship him. commands me to speak, for I am the Mahdi, the expected one 
And I am sprung from the forehead of the family of my Lord Muhammad. Blessings be upon him. Oh, my beloved. Did I not promise thee a miracle would fall from heaven from the Prophet Muhammad? And was not this so? <laughs> fight a holy war against the fat and the corrupt and the sinful and the unbelieving. Ye fight a war to restore to a disobedient, forgetful world the laws and commands of the Prophet Muhammad. Blessings and peace be upon him, whose instrument on earth I am. Exult ye not that men are dead, since more must die tomorrow. Oh, my beloved. In a vision, the Prophet Muhammad has instructed me, let mountain and desert tremble, let cities shudder, and let the fat and the rich and the corrupt in far places mark this moment and turn in fear of all those miracles to come. And let none in all Islam from this victorious hour Believe I am other than the expected one, the true Mahdi. I think we live in really interesting times in how we view foreign policy with countries like America being, and indeed the West in general, being seen as the real bad guys on the world stage. And there is a kind of revisionism going on, especially in terms of history. Um, one need only look at the truly cringeworthy um, Oxford debate, which um, Nicholas Soames gallantly stood up for his grandfather, Winston Churchill, who was the subject that night of a kind of retrospective torching of his historical legacy. And people, I think, are genuinely morally confused on a lot of issues, especially as, as to how we deal with history and make sense of it. But this was a major incident in British history at the time, and cartoon is an interesting subject. I must add, what will become of Egypt if the Mahdi occupies Khartoum and the Khartoum Arsenal? What a jolly day you'll have with our marriage tomorrow. Gentlemen, let me make one thing clear. I'm sending no armies up the Nile. You, Hartings, your imperialist friends, you're looking for any excuse to move into Central Africa. We are discussing Egypt. We have a moral responsibility to Egypt. A moral responsibility. We have the Suez Canal. Say it. Egypt protects Suez. We protect Egypt. Why in heaven's name can't Egypt protect herself? We've just heard from Colonel Stewart. She's not up to it. Colonel Stewart? Oh, I've no doubt he's like the rest of you. He can see himself leading a British army 1,600 miles up the Nile. Flags flying. Glory for all. I beg your pardon, sir. Before I'd accept such a command, I'd resign my commission. I wouldn't spend one British life to oppose the Mahdi, not in the Sudan. I assumed you were for intervention. You didn't ask my opinion, sir. Well, I want it by heaven if it agrees with mine. <laughs> Gentlemen, I shall suggest to Her Majesty in Scotland tomorrow that we shall discharge our obligations to Egypt by evacuating all the Egyptians from Khartoum. How? Without either a British army or loss of British honor? I shall entertain suggestions as to just how. Although it is no Lawrence of Arabia, in Heston's hands, Gordon makes for a fascinating protagonist. When he arrives in Khartoum, he proclaims that being home 
the privileged white Briton who has gone native, integrating himself into local culture, and his own way become a kind of father figure to the locals who worshipped him like a monarch. It is possibly slightly uncomfortable now with what, in light of what I've just been saying about revisionism, the film might seem very dated to people and, and indeed possibly offensive, dare, if that actually means anything. But the British Empire on film is filled with such characters, and yet these are massive simplifications and indeed problematic ones. With the white man's superiority causing locals to fall into blind adulation, it reinforces the idea that the indigenous population of these countries were simple-minded fools simply waiting to be shown the light by their fairer-skinned superiors. But what I like about Gordon as a character is the fact that he is, on the presentation at least, a deeply loyal and legitimately concerned for the people under his protection. I have been instructed by the Prophet, blessings and peace be upon him, to worship in the Khartoum Mosque. There are those among the Sudanese who will oppose you. I welcome in peace all those who worship with me. And the others? Mohammed Ahmed, may I suggest that when first I came to the Sudan, its body was sick, stricken with hunger and abused by war. I cured it. And this land. I am not a loving man, Mohammed Ahmed, but this land became the only thing that I have ever loved. I cannot. Under my God, do you understand? I cannot leave it to the sickness and the misery in which I once found it. I respect you, Rodun Pasha. I make no war on you. Make no war on your own people. I'll take the Egyptians back to Egypt. I'll leave the Sudan to the Sudanese and be happy and contented. But if I'm to leave Khartoum to sickness and misery to death, the Egyptians must remain in Khartoum. Gordon becomes an anti-authoritarian and indeed pro-indigenous people's champions. The distant bureaucrats in London fail to understand the severity of the impending massacre or don't actually care at all. Gordon does what he thinks is best, which is to force London's hand before disaster can occur. Part of the reason why the film works so well is because it's so written. The screenplay by Robert Ardrey captures the geopolitical situation where that is thoroughly engaging. Indeed, Khartoum is quite a talky epic. It feels scholarly, considered, and dare I say, intellectual, and the performance and the delivery by the actors complemented each other well. I'm completely fine with this. I was absolutely captivated by it, I have to say. It never felt boring. I never felt like I was being lectured. I just felt I was, in, in some bizarre way, actually witnessing a little piece of history. And at just over two hours, it's not the most epic of epic, but Basil Deard and, and Doctor of Photography Edward Schiff create a stunningly visual work. Many of these films often have a jarring disparity between the epicness of the location shoots and the clearly the work that's done on soundstage at Shepperton, and in fairness, I never noticed it in Khartoum. And as it worked towards its conclusion, the spectacle increased. I was increasingly aware of the fact how much the film had gripped me. And of course, when one really looks into the events of the film, it is littered with historical inaccuracies. And contemporary critics will find fault with Laurence Olivier 
doing a veritable blackface playing the Mahdi and lead us to say it could easily be simplified too with white people being good and brown-skinned people being bad. But all that being said, I think Cartoon brings some stuff to the table. It's interesting, it's relevant, and it's a really good story well told. And I also do think that in terms of its geopolitics, and one thing I did think about when I was watching Cartoon was that we simply don't learn from history. We don't learn the mistakes that have been made in the past. And I think the film is due an overdue reappraisal. And I'm pleased to report that the Blu-ray of this more than does the film's justice. I have the Twilight Time um, edition. And from everything I've heard and everything I've seen, the image quality on that is slightly better than the Eureka Classics, which I haven't seen. I've not been able to do a side-by-side -side comparison. This is only going on what people have told me. So if you can get one a hold of the Twilight Zone, when I know, uh, sorry, the Twilight Time edition, I know it's a Region A uh, Blu-ray, and I know there's only 2,000 copies made. Um, I managed to get mine on eBay a couple of years ago. Um, but I'm pretty certain that the Eureka Classics versions will be um, more than up to the job because some of those images are absolutely incredible. It's well worth seeing on the biggest uh, television or projector you can. And sometimes I know that the film does go on at 70mm film festivals. As, and as I understand, there are surviving 70mm prints of the film that um, still do the rounds. So if you can, if it's ever playing near you, um, do go and watch it. I, I think it's a really, really interesting and visually stunning film. Okay, so as I said at the top of this episode, I was trying to sort out some films that were made in Russia at the time because they had a 70mm process themselves called Sovscope and it was hard actually to find a lot of these films um, especially on DVD and there, there, were, there, were, there were quite a lot of them made in this format um, a surprisingly high number actually yet they are very hard to get hold of on DVD let alone Blu-ray and the other problem was that was coming across was that the transfers for them in no way shape or form I think did the films themselves justice they looked to me to be very very poor quality um, copies possibly in some cases possibly even like VHS type of quality certainly videotape perhaps I don't know if they were sort of sourced from strange archives anyway but yeah not great at all to be brutally honest with you um, and there was one that I was really interested in watching, which was um, Tarkovsky, which was a biography of the Russian composer. And I was hoping that the fact that this was a Russian film being made about one of its most famous cultural icons, I'd be in for something of a treat. And indeed, this film was nominated for the 1971 Award, uh, Academy Award for Best Foreign Language feature, um, had music by Dmitry Tolkien. And I thought, well, you know, what could possibly go wrong and here's the thing the film is 157 minutes long and I honestly and this is with no exaggeration I cannot tell you a single thing about this film I don't know whether it was good or bad or what but the simple fact of the matter was 
I don't remember a single thing about it. I hadn't been drinking, I wasn't stoned, I wasn't under the influence of anything, but I just could not tell you anything about it. It was the most surreal film viewing experience I have ever had. I made sure my phone wasn't in the room, that there were no distractions, no nothing. And this film literally just blew over me. I I, I cannot honestly legitimately say anything about it. Um, I've never experienced this before watching a film. I've never been so completely disengaged from anything. And again, I don't know if it's good or bad. I I honestly can't tell you. This isn't some sort of um, trying to pass the buck or anything like that and get out of actually having to kind of do a deep dive on it. I I just don't know anything about it. I, 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 I cannot in my life explain what happened. It was almost as if this time just passed and... I might as well have been sat in front of a blank screen. I don't even know how good looking this film was. I don't know. I just simply cannot tell you anything about it. Um, If anyone has experienced this phenomenon watching a film, please get in contact with me and tell me that I'm not alone. But um, yeah, Igor Talankin's Tarkovsky, your guess is as good as mine. I don't, I don't, I I was going to watch it again, but I sort of thought I don't think I could put myself through it. Um... And I was legitimately worried that the same thing would happen again. Perhaps I'll go back to it in a few years. But yeah, I'm completely and utterly stumped as to what I saw or what to make of it. So if you've seen it, let me know. I might might be missing something. But um, it's a, a bizarre viewing experience, to say the least. the gutters, condemned by every syllable she utters, by right she should be taken out and hung for the cold-blooded murder of the English tongue. Oh, heavens, what a sound. This is what the British population calls an elementary education. I'm sorry, I think you picked a poor example. Did I? Hear them down in Soho Square, dropping H's everywhere, speaking English any way they like. Hey, you, sir, did you go to school? What do you type me for, a fool? No one taught him take instead of tyke. Hear a Yorkshireman, or worse, hear a Cornishman converse, they'd rather hear a choir singing flat. Chickens cackling in a barn, just like this one. God! God. I ask you, sir, what sort of word is that? It's our and gone that keep her in her place. Not her wretched clothes and dirty face. Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? This verbal class distinction by now should be antique. If you spoke as she does, sir, instead of the way you do, why, you might be selling flowers too. Beg your pardon? An Englishman's way of speaking absolutely classifies him. The moment he talks, he makes some other Englishman despise him. One common language I'm afraid we'll never get. Oh, why can't the English learn to set a good example to people whose English is painful to your ears? 
The Scotch and the Irish leave you close to the tears. There even are places where English completely disappears. Well, in America, they haven't used it for years. Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? Norwegians learn Norwegian, the Greeks are taught their Greek. In France, every Frenchman knows his language from A to Z. The French don't care what they do, actually, as long as they pronounce it properly. Arabians learn Arabian with the speed of summer lightning. The Hebrews learn it backwards, which is absolutely frightening. Use proper English, you're regarded as a freak. Why can't the English... Why can't the English learn to speak? So there are some films that are so famous you almost feel like you don't have to watch them on the base you think you probably know everything there is to know about them in the first place and one of the points was doing this like 70mm festival was to try and watch some films that I hadn't seen before and I decided that it would be a good excuse to watch the blu-ray I owned of My Fair Lady directed by George Cukor which I had never seen up until this point and this was one of the absolute joys of this festival. Not only did I love My Fair Lady, I, I think it might be, have become one of my favourite films. Um, of course, it stars the incredible Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison, based on the George Bernard Shaw stage play Polygamon. Um, it was a tremendously successful uh, show before in which um, Rex Harrison played the character of Henry for many years and the charm and the chemistry between its two characters was for me absolutely engrossing from the very first moment the film started. Eliza and Henry see each other through the lenses of social class. Henry sees Eliza as a creature in need of correcting in order Eliza to pass off as being a proper member of society. It is, and he is, um, he, he lives a life of being a bachelor. He has no partner, no children, just his housekeeper and maids. And he's obviously tremendously snobby about what goes on outside his front door. Now it is interesting, I think this is worth making a point, that it's actually Eliza who is the instigator of wanting her training from Henry to try and turn her into something more passable in the upper classes. And there's no doubt that Henry sees the opportunity as a vehicle which by he can he can already polish his already ample ego. They're both headstrong and extremely individualistic people who want to get personal gain from the experience. And it is also a love story of sorts between Henry and Eliza, except there is never a kiss or anything that even comes close. It is a love expressed in the occasional glance, the lyrics of a song, or a line of dialogue that can barely register. Now, I would never expect that these two were gonna ever get together. I don't even think it would work to agree. And I think we have to kind of be honest and say that this is Audrey Hepburn we're talking about. And even in the world of film, would she ever go for a man like Rex Harrison? And I don't, I don't think it's entirely necessary, but I think the fact that 
there is obviously a chemistry there. Um, is it sexual? I don't know. Is it friendship? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Perhaps it's even a mixture of a variety of things. But whatever it is, they seem to have a screen presence, which is quite incredible. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Again. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. I think she's got it. I think she's got it. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. By George, she's got it. By George, she's got it. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where's that soggy plain? In Spain, in Spain. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. and Hampshire. Hurricanes hardly happen. How kind of you to let me come. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where's that blasted rain? The way they spar keeps you transfixed throughout the entire film, and the film obviously has, and the film also has some incredibly emotional, tender moments. It's hard not to be moved when you see Eliza listening to Henry congratulate himself after they've managed to fool a party of solicitors that Eliza's actually someone from the upper classes, and she so desperately wants to be part of the celebration, to be acknowledged, to be congratulated. And for, above all, just to hear Henry say something kind to her, anything in fact that might indicate he's actually quite proud of her. Instead, he reversed the type, self-congratulated, dismissive. And as she looks on, her face wound, wounded with the hurt of realising she has been snubbed for his own ego. Harrison played Henry in the stage show and was expected to join the film by co-star Julie Andrews, who would have controversially replaced Hepburn due to the latter's perceived box office potential. It may have been harsh on Andrews, but this is Hepburn's finest hour on screen. She's tough, vulnerable, hilarious, sensitive, enough to make you love her from the first to the last frame. It's a common known fact that Hepburn did not sing her own songs. That would be done by Marnie Nixon, perhaps even cost her an Oscar that year, that would actually go to none other than Judy Waters for Mary Poppins. If you are looking closely, you can see a lip sync issue. Harrison would perform live with the aid of a radio mic. Purists might scoff, but it made little difference to me, as there were some of the most gorgeous songs I've ever heard in a musical film. And, and having been a bachelor for several years in my life, not now, I'm hasten to add, but it was hard not to smile onto the lyrics of I'm just an ordinary man. Have you ever met a man of good character where women are concerned? Well, I haven't. I find the moment I let a woman makes friends with me, she becomes jealous, exacting, suspicious, and a damn nuisance. And I find the moment that I make friends with a woman, I become selfish and tyrannical. So here I am, a confirmed old bachelor, and likely to remain so. Well, after all, Pickering, I'm an ordinary man who desires nothing more than just an ordinary chance to live exactly. 
exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants. An average man of mine, of no eccentric whim, who likes to live his life free of strife, doing whatever he thinks is best for him. Well, just a, an ordinary man. But let a woman in your life and your serenity is through. She'll redecorate your home from the cellar to the dome, then go on to the enthralling fun of overhauling you. Let a woman in your life, and you're up against a wall. Make a plan and you will find she has something else in mind, and so rather than do either, you do something else that neither likes at all. You want to talk of Keats or Milton, she only wants to talk of love. Go to see a play or ballet and spend it searching for her glove. Let a woman in your life and you invite eternal strife. Let them buy their wedding bands for those anxious little hands. I'd be equally as willing for a dentist to be drilling than to ever let a woman in my life. I'm a very gentle man even-tempered and good-natured, whom you never hear complain, who has the milk of human kindness by the court in every vein. A patient man am I, down to my fingertips. The sort who never could, ever would, let an insulting remark escape his lips. A very gentle man. On the whole, however, the songs are witty, touching, and smile-inducing. Smile-inducing. I honestly cannot work out what I enjoy more, the songs or the spoken set word sections, both are near on perfect. Why can't the English Henry's song essay on what is wrong with the common person's pronunciation issue at the start of the film is also an interesting way of exploring the film's class criticism. Henry represents a class view that Britain is divided between the have and the have-nots, with the have-nots in their place because of their inferiority. These people are, as he sees it, not worthy of any social progression because of their common behaviours. Through Eliza, he experiences the rank hypocrisy of this law. Eliza wants to speak about her in order to climb society, yet the fact that she can so easily infiltrate the world highlights its superficial veneer. It's the film that argues people should not be kept in their place and that they are very indeed. And indeed, the idea that people should have a place is a detestable concept in of itself. Kuko's direction is decidedly theatrical, which isn't just the film lacks cinematic quality, far from it in fact. Largely this is due to Cecil Beaton's exquisite set and costume design. It's a fantasy of a film, so outright surreal at times, the ascot race scenes particularly triumph of all the elements of the film. Cosmopolitan costumes, art direction, sound, vision, the lot, culminate in a sequence of such perfection. I was actually reminded there was, it was a casual reminder that there are times there were only film there are things that only films can truly do, and this was one of them. By the time Henry was singing, I've grown accustomed to her face, you know this is a man who's very foundational been rocked. His house with all its gadgets and contractions to create the perfect elocution suddenly seemed to be like evidence of a man who somewhere along life forgot to find any deeper connection to the world. When Eliza comes back and he play for her, playfully asks her to get his slippers, you're left not knowing what happens next. This being a love story of no physical connection, you're denied a kiss, in this instance even a glance. Does she stay? Could they even make a go of it? 
We will never know, and quite frankly, it didn't really bother me. I just love being with them in this glorious widescreen sh studio film wonder. This is what I think Warner Brothers did so well. It's why I love Hollywood at its best, and after watching My Fair Lady, I was reminded of why I love films in the first place. And yes, I think it has now entered my top 10. winner of the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film, Akira Kurosawa, creator of The Seven Samurai and Rashomon, brings to the screen perhaps his greatest masterpiece. Uzala is a story of friendship and respect. Set against the breathtaking backdrop of Siberia's majestic wilderness, this story of an army engineer and his guide is told on an intimate human scale. Side by side, they battle nature's savage forces and its infinite mysteries. So Akira Kurosawa is a director who I often find myself dipping in and out of his work. And whenever I do watch one of his films, I'm always left wondering why I haven't watched more of them or I don't make more of an effort to go through his filmography because they are always endlessly surprising, technically incredible and thoroughly gripping. And it's fairly obvious why he is often referred to as being one of the best directors to have ever worked. And I was quite pleased when I found out, for the purposes of putting together this, this festival, that um, he had in fact directed a film in 70mm. And it was 1975's Dursu Uzzala. And he was actually invited by Moz Films to make this 70mm production. And it was, a, it was a story he had actually been trying to film for many years. And despite being made in collaborations with the Russians, Dursa Uzlu doesn't seem like a political film. And it's not, I, perhaps I was expecting it to be quite propaganda in, propaganda, sorry, in nature, um, extolling the party virtues. But luckily, um, I think for the, the benefit of the film, it isn't that at all. It's instead an incredibly sympathetic work. You have the character Dursa Uzlu, who is a man living outside of modernity. He knows the land and he knows how to exist in tandem with nature. Political systems and industrial and societal progress mean nothing to him. He lives out in the, the wilds of eastern Siberia, away from the main political sentence, where he comes into contact with 
a Captain Arsineev who is leading a scientific patrol into Siberia. And it's a quite brilliant, subtle film in so many ways. In one sequence, Dursa Uzalu and Captain Arsineev are trapped in, open, in the open as a winter storm blows in. The landscape is flat and the wind will cause them to die of exposure. Yet Derso Zulu kicks into action. He instructs Asanaev to gather as much long grass as he can and the pair begin to build a shelter. You don't need to know anything other than the fact that Derso Zulu is demonstrating learned ancient crafts taught on the steppe. And Captain Asanaev is no city boy being made a fool of. This is just a moment of pure survival, where two men from different worlds come together to save themselves and each other. It creates a real bond between the two, and I think it's the genius of the screenplay coming into fruition, because we don't need scene after scene of them comparing each other's worlds. We just have two men who work together, who save each other, and from then on are bound to each other. And it shows that one man from the state and one man from the land can come together and intersect. Now, Dursa Uslo ultimately wins over the sceptics amongst the expedition. It's impossible not to respect him. He, his bushcraft skills feed them and protect him. Yet there is a melancholy to Dursa Uslo. His family have died of smallpox. And as you watch him in this world, you do wonder how long he can really survive out in it. Perhaps it would be easier for him to move into what we call civilization with its running water, shops and comforts. But Korosara never presents Dursa as, as some kind of noble savage either. His compassion, his consideration and his spirituality are transferable into any part of our own lives. And indeed, he teaches members of the expedition a thing or two about themselves too. And what Kakira Korosara does is cut through all the superficial barriers and make a profound connection between Captain Asanaev and Dursa Uzalu. After their first encounter, he disappears into the wilderness, leaving a profound effect on both men. When we catch up with them again some years later, there is a joyous encounter between the two. You realise the pair have probably thought about each other every day since the last time they met. And it's here that Korosara introduces the cruelest protagonist to the story, time this is simply not the same Dursa Azu as we have come to see he's older his sight is failing him and he appears to be upset sometimes confused when the party is forced to kill a tiger that is stalking them he worries that they have taken nature out of balance and the gods will send another for him and so Dursa Azu begins to move in with the family of Captain Arsenaev yet the modern world the city is simply too much for him he might be going blind, but he has to get back out into nature. It was here that I perhaps would fear that Mosfilm would get in the way, that he'd been forced to endure the sight of Dursa Uzlu integrating into the party way of life. But there's no such thing. This is a, a Kirikorosar film through and through. I sometimes don't like the endings of his films, not because they are bad, but because I care for the people so much in them, and that often they go through journeys where sometimes they expose extol virtues that I simply don't possess. I wanted Captain Arsenaev to stop Dursuzu, to somehow intervene, to pull some lore out of the bag for his own sake. Instead he gives his best friend his prize gun and sends him back to where he truly belongs, the wilds, where he can be on his own and live the way he wants to. The film is a coming together of worlds and shows the commonality that exists between us all. It's a hopeful depiction of human beings and the connections between us and how we can come to care about people from all walks of life. And this isn't to suggest that the film doesn't have an air of melancholy about it. It certainly did. 
there's a certain comfort in watching a film in which the protagonist leads a life which is true to himself. Now it goes without saying that this is a truly beautiful film. You won't get the huge vistas and canvas of the likes of Ran with Durs Uzlu and for a 70mm film it might seem quite intimate, indeed much of it is shot at eye level, but this is a gorgeous film to reach even if it does have a rather poor DVD transfer and boy does this need a Criterion release and upgrade. It's too early to say where it ranks in my experience of Akira Kurosawa Farms, but I was felt profoundly moved by this as a viewing experience. It made me ponder and, won and wonder and left a mark on me in some ways, in that way films sometimes do when you least expect it. I thought it about random times since I saw it and it's definitely inspired me that it might be time for a long overdue Akira Kurosawa retrospective. So I decided to end this festival with possibly the biggest and most notorious of all the 75mm epics and that was with Joseph Mankiewicz's 1963 film Cleopatra. I had, before ever watching it, heard an enormous amount about this film. It's troubled production, the beginning of the Burton Taylor love affair, it almost bankrupting its studio 20th Century Fox, and also it being one of the biggest flops in Hollywood history, which as we shall later discover later is an entirely false accusation about this film. And I suppose the main question I want to answer was, is Cleopatra actually any good? A point I will come to in due course as well, but first it is worth having a look at the film's origin and why it became one of the most expensive films ever made. Although it would end up costing almost $35 million, which is about $400 million in today's money, Cleopatra did not start life quite as grand. Fox wanted to replicate the success of the Paramount 1934 production of Cleopatra and brought in veteran producer Walter Wagner to make the film on a budget of about $2 million. It would be a relatively cheap film and a safe project for the studio which they hoped they could make a good return on. Soon however the budget was agreed at the higher rate of $5 million with Elizabeth Taylor starring and Ruben Malaman on directing duties. Taylor's contract is worthy of note for two reasons. Number one was the amount. She was not contracted to a given studio as was the thing at the time and it was the first time really in the history of Hollywood that a star was able to command such an astronomical fee. In this case one million dollars and as I will discuss later it also ushered in a huge change between the relationship between studios and stars. But there was always there's also an aesthetic reason why Taylor's contract is of such note. It was stated in it that the film would be shot in Todd A.O. widescreen format because her husband Mike Todd was its inventor and after his death Taylor owned the rights to it. So basically every frame that passed through the camera would financially benefit here. Clearly this was a woman who knew what she was doing. Now originally the film was due to be shot in London. Sets were built at Pinewood to double for Alexander with, act with, act with other actors cast such as Peter Finch and Stephen Boyd and production got underway. Now, I am no Hollywood producer, but if I was looking to make a film about Cleopatra, which obviously, as we know, would, would be set in Egypt, I would probably look for a country that had a climate that was close as possible to the actual climate of the place I was trying to reproduce. Which makes me wonder, had anyone involved on Cleopatra ever been to England? 
A country where on a given day in July, the peak of summer, you may find yourself deciding what fur coats wear, and of course only an idiot would leave the house without an umbrella due to the rain. Yes, England is hardly reliable for when it comes to the weather. I tend to find Manchester is either a bit cold and rainy or very cold and rainy, with the odd nice day chucked in just to remind you the sun does exist. So of course the weather played its part in grinding production to a halt. Then there was the small matter of Taylor. She would end up contracting pneumonia and almost dying. With its lead star out of action, production ground to a halt without any meaningful footage actually being shot. The powers that be at Fox retreated back to Hollywood with Taylor in recovery. It was decided the project needed a drastic rethink. It was, the production was instead moved to Rome and Ruben Mellon was replaced with Joe Mankovic, who brought, was brought in to rewrite and direct the film. Rex Harrison was cast as Julius Caesar and Richard Burton as Mark Anthony, with Roddy McDowell coming in as Octavian. Yet Cleopatra was far from being back on track. The main issue was that the script was not actually complete. In fact, Cleopatra never had a script completed during the entirety of its production, which is meant practically was the film was to shoot non-chronologically, and this had two notable effects on the production. It was far harder to keep costs down, that sets would need to be built, scene shot, taken down, and then built again when changes were made later on to the script. On top of this, you had an army of designers and making costumes and props ad hoc, often making the same piece twice after discarding items that they thought were no longer needed. Then you had the wages. The production employed an army of drivers, cooks and technicians, many of whom had do nothing waiting for scenes to be written. The actors themselves were often left doing absolutely nothing as well. Burton and McDowell were given something to do in the other studio production going on at the time, the war film The Longest Day, when Rex Harrison simply packed himself off and went back to England to join his new speedboat before he was being summoned back by the film's angry producers. The film's most expensive set piece was also shot, that being Cleopatra's arrival into Rome, arguably the film's most impressive sequence. However, there was a problem where director of photography Leon Shamway was not happy with the shadows that were being cast. Yes, he noticed they were way off. So what did the producers do? Simply tell him tough and to film it anyway? No, they decided to halt the production of that sequence and slate it in for another six months when the shadows would be more agreeable. Cleopatra had become a cash drain on Fox by this point. The Longest Day was its only other film in production, and indeed the film had to be a hit to keep the studio going. Several films slated for production were cancelled, including the Marilyn Monroe vehicle, and Fox became increasingly worried that Cleopatra would effectively bankrupt the entire studio. Yet there was another twist in the tale. By this stage, Burton had arrived in Rome, and one morning, barely able to function due to a hangover, Taylor took pity on the man and tried to nurse him back to health. The result? A love affair began to bloom between the already married stars. And so the set became a paparazzi's dream, a colossal production with its lead stars, having an extramarital affair. The public could not get enough, however the Catholic Church were far from impressed, with the Vatican rebuking the immorality of the affair. It was publicity of sorts, and one could argue that all publicity is a good thing, but in reality it just created more attention as to what the hell was going on with Cleopatra. When would it be finished, and how much was it actually costing Fox? Fox caught something of a break when The Longest Day was a huge hit providing a well-needed cast injection into the studio, yet there was nothing going else on on the studio lot. The sets were empty and executives were collectively holding their breath to see what would happen with Cleopatra. 
Now, eventually, Cleopatra was finished. Taylor, by the end of the film's production, had pocketed a staggering $7 million. And then the Herculean task of editing the film began. Joseph Mankiewicz had an idea that the film should be split in two, one called Caesar and Cleopatra, and then a few months later, another release, Anthony and Cleopatra, two films for the price of one. But Fox begged to differ with studio head Daryl Zanuck firing Joseph Mankiewicz. He wanted a picture to come out quickly before Taylor and Burton split up in order to capitalise on their love affair. Yet as work began to re-edit the film, it became apparent that Cleopatra was a bit of a mess. Getting the pace right and finding the story was providing harder than anyone first thought. The lack of screen, shooting screenplay was playing havoc on the post-production process, so Fox decided it would have to find the only man suitable to try and bring it back together. And that man was none other than Joseph Mankiewicz, who was rehired, and then somehow managed to get authorization to reshoot the film's opening to make it more spectacular. And I can confirm in the this was a in retrospect a very good decision as I've seen both footage from the original shoot and the reshoots and indeed it is far more impressive. However, whilst this was going on, two books written by the film's producers were also being were also about to be released, each detailing in painful detail the film's torturous productions. Eventually, out of all this noise and mess, Cleopatra was released in 1963. And it seemed critics liked Cleopatra. In fact, some actually loved it. But most of all, so did audiences. Contrary to widely held beliefs, Cleopatra was a success financially. It made a ton of money, yet given its budget, this profit would take some time to accumulate. But there was also another issue that was going to plague the film. Cleopatra was far too long for multiple screenings in one night. And when Reed cut under Zanuck's instructions to 3 hours 14 minutes, it was a cut Taylor saw on her first viewing of the film, and she actually hated it. Yet later that year, the film would receive nine Oscar nominations. Uh, Roddy McDowell was due to get a nomination for Best Supporting Actor, but a clerical error at Fox means that his nomination never materialised. And the film went on to win four Oscars for special effects, art direction, costumes and best cinematography and anyone who's seen the films I doubt you could argue that the film was fully deserving of these. Now its legacy is varied, it was often seen as a disaster and it most certainly wasn't, yet it did change Hollywood, it was truly the beginning of star power in the industry and it changed how the studio would make large scale epics, preferring instead a model of joint production to, negotiate, to negate as much of the possible financial risk as possible. So with all this being said, I went to Cleopatra with a bag full of expectations. My virgin screening of the film would be in my home cinema with the Blu-ray restoration. I hunkered down for four hours to take it all in. And my thoughts at the end were something along the line of this. It's okay. It's fine. But boy, does Cleopatra have some issues. It is worth getting one thing clear though. Cleopatra is stunning to watch, yet there are two very different visual elements to the film. When outside, it literally beggars belief. Simply look at the film's opening, pause it and have a good gawp. You will see perfectly choreographed action in the centre middle and then sometimes miles off in the distance. And all of this is CGI free, of course. It is staggering, I dare say awe-inspiring at times to think that this is all real. And of course it has a tangibility to it. You can see how the actors are completely immersed in the world that has been created around them. And quite honestly, I was marvelling at the film when I was seeing, and having come off a back-to-back -back Marvel viewing marathon, it was, well, I f 
It was good to see what I felt was a real film again. But, and this is a big but, the interiors of Cleopatra are vast. Huge pillars, gigantic baths and statues. And you can see where the money is gone. But it is indicative of one of the film's biggest flaws. It is all at times a little bit too ridiculous. Indeed, indeed, it feels almost like a fetishized version of what people think Egypt and Rome would have looked like, with vast sound stages that made many of the scenes feel like I was watching one of those beanbags from a theatre in a cinema. It's all slightly ridiculous to a degree. And yes, I know it's a film and a big one, and it's supposed to be grand and overblown. But inside, when, it, when inside, Cleopatra is a hard film to take seriously at times, hindered by a script in which every person who speaks is seemingly unable to utter a sentence without it sounding unnecessarily hyperbolic or grandiose, with the biggest offender being Martin Landu's character, who has the expression of a man who has just realised he has shit himself and needs to change his pants. The film's scale, therefore, does become a distraction. I felt arms length from its intimacy. My eyes were wandering around the set or trying to get a sneaky look at some of the extras' barely covered bodies. And yet, despite all this, I was never bored by the film, which say I wasn't always interested in something going on in it, if not actually the story itself. And let's be honest, we all know the story. We all know what happens. And we all roll our eyes at re Hollywood remakes. And this was a remake of one of Hollywood's favourite stories, and rightly so. It's gold dust. But what I did enjoy was the pop and fizz between Rex Harrison and Taylor. And in these moments, there's a real zip to the screenplay. It feels more focused, less interested in grandiosity, and instead gets to the core of this relationship. Well, I'm, uh, I'm pleased that you received my summons, after all, and were able to... Summons? I'm pleased to say I received nothing of the kind. I'm surprised that you thought I would answer one. <laughs> Young lady... The voyage in your non-magic carpet has apparently not tired you, but I have had an exhausting day. Caesar, it is essential that we understand each other. Only through me can you hope to escape from the desperate situation in which you find yourself. I wouldn't bite into that if I were you. Did you bring it with you? Have you had it tasted? Neither. It's probably poisoned. Or at least it's another way out of the desperate situation in which I find myself. You're being tolerant of me, aren't you? Is it because you're so much older? The maps are inferior, out of date compared to mine. They and I have aged together. The legs to the west are poorly marked. Certain important hill positions not even noted. I must arrange for you to dress my map makers and general staff. We've gotten off to a bad start, haven't we? I've done nothing but rub you the wrong way. I'm not sure I want to be rubbed by you at all, young lady. You get the impression that both these people want to fuck each other's brains out, and quite frankly you can see it in the performances. Taylor's Cleopatra is very modern, that she knows her sexuality and doesn't feel constrained by contemporary attitudes towards femininity and the perceived role in society. Now this is a Cleo who drives men crazy, but also is, makes it abundantly clear that she too isn't afraid to make it clear what she wants. And Taylor is every bit of a movie star here. She owns the role, at the height of her powers, playing one of the most famous women to have ever lived. And the camera loves her. There's a lot of flesh on display. I wonder if the real Cleopatra would dare show so much leg and boobs. But this, again, is a fantasy film, and the male gaze of the camera is all over Taylor's body. Swords? Javelins? Or are you going to set me on fire? The time has come, I think, for us to understand each other. 
Whatever else I may be, in your opinion, first of all, I am Caesar. And I am Cleopatra, queen, daughter of Isis. If I say so, and when I say so, you are what I say you are, nothing more. Hail Caesar. You, the descendant of generations of inbred, incestuous mental defectives, how dare you call anyone barbarian? Barbarian? Daughter of an idiotic flute-playing drunkard who bribed his way to the throne of Egypt. Your price was too high, remember? I've had my fill of the smug condescension of you worn-out pretenders parading on the ruins of your past glories. The future that concerns me. If it is, keep out of my affairs and do as I say. Do as you say? Literally? As if I was something you had conquered? If I choose to regard you as such. Am I to understand, then, that you feel free to do with me whatever you want? Whenever you want? Yes, I want that understood. Won't you at least wear your laurel wreath? So I can be reminded it's the divine Caesar that honors me so? You talk too much. I promise you, you won't like me this way. And this film wants you to gawp at the stars, the same way the stars gawp at each other. In one scene, Cleopatra observes Caesar through a spy hole, and the film's voyeuristic nature becomes far more explicit. In the context of the scene, it is to witness Caesar have a fit, yet we know such holes are there to have a good perv through, basically, to watch and to watch people having sex. And then you know this is the first time Cleopatra hasn't had a good peek at her quarry. Yet despite all the sex and attempted seduction, there's a legit edge to Cleopatra as well. She's no one's fool, she doesn't hesitate to make one of her maids drink poison wine she was hoping to bump her off with, and reads the proverbial riot act to Caesar when he burns down the great library of Alexander, and God forbid you don't kneel in front of her when she says so. The arrival of Cleopatra in Rome is indeed spectacular. It's utterly ludicrous on every conceivable level. Yet this is why I reminded what Hollywood does best. The sequence is, is riotously good fun, often resembling something out of a Hunger Games. And a historical document in this sequence, I dare say, takes many liberties with which what have been. Apparently the extras present simply chanted Taylor's name in a kind of mad frenzy, and it seems fitting. A film about a queen with the biggest star in the world in the most expensive film ever produced. The film is constantly impressive when it goes for scale, often seemingly quite standard mid-shots of two actors talking will end in the camera panning to show some vast spectacular scenery. But there is no denying that the fact after the intermission, the film lags terribly. I'm not sure this is Burton's finest hour. He lacks the likability and depth of Rex Harrison Caesar. And bizarrely, the chemistry with Taylor is not as strong. The dance, I take it, is over. Sit up. I want to see whether you sleep with your memories. With so much left unsaid within you, it must be a relief to break and tear things. I want to say something now. Perhaps some other time. Now! Caesar. Conquer and conquer. Bring the world to its knees. You're not a Caesar. Did you know that? Be braver than the bravest. Wiser than the wiser, stronger than the strongest, still no Caesar. Do what you will, Caesar's done it first and done it better, rule better, love better, fought better. Run where you will as fast as you can, you can't get out. There's no way out. 
The shadow of Caesar will cover you and, and cover the universe for all of time. Whenever you like, you said in Rome. Come to Alexandria whenever you like. Now, tonight, I said. I would like to come tonight, to bow to the throne upon which Caesar put you, to talk of a new treaty. Caesar's can't be improved. Copy it. Of Caesar's son. Of the dream you shared with Caesar that still fills your life. Alexander's designed for a world to be ruled by you and Caesar. Where is Antony? Where is Mark Antony? Antony the Great, the divine Antony! Here. He's here. One step behind Caesar, at the right hand of Caesar, in the shadow of Caesar. Tell me, tell me how many have loved you since him? One, ten, anyone, no one? Have they kissed you with Caesar's lips, touched you with his hands? Has it been his name you cried out in the dark? And afterwards alone, has he reproached you and have you begged forgiveness of his memory? You come here then running over with wine and self-pity to conquer Caesar. So long now, you filled my life. Like, like a great noise that I hear everywhere in my heart. I want to be free of you, of wanting you, of being afraid. Cleopatra culminates in a huge battle sequence and what goes before with Taylor and Burton filmed way too drawn out as if the film has run out of steam and the lack of shooting script begins to show the dialogue feels staggeringly melodramatic and the film feels like it's struggling to find its purpose to continue. I rather suspect that the producers worked on the assumption that the more Burton and Taylor was on screen the more people would like the film. But all those years later, contemporary audiences simply aren't interested in the Burton-Taylor romance. And go on, the film does. And yes, that battle sequence is something to hold. The mixture of model work and scale ships is seamless. It's also refreshing to see an economy to the scale as well. The modern blockbuster wants a thousand ships. Here we have quite a few, but the effect is nonetheless exhilarating. There's a tangibility to the scenes. You can see the craft, the net result of a horde of carpenters and set designers creating it for real rather than on a hard drive. But for what it's spectacular moments, Clear really does run out of impetus towards the end of its runtime. Burton's death is dull and underwhelming, and he doesn't have as many as the choice lines that Rex Harrison does. His speech goes on and on, but somehow doesn't feel earned or really resonate particularly. All being said though, I did enjoy Cleopatra. It is indeed an epic of truly epic proportions. It's staffed, it's silly, it's preposterous, and quite honestly, I wanted nothing else. All of this is helped by one of the greatest Blu-rays ever to have been produced. It looks and sounds incredible, and I would not hesitate the chance to go and watch this film on the big screen if a 70mm or a 4K projection was available. And it has its place in film history. It wasn't a flop. It's made its money back. It had a huge impact on the culture at the time. Fashion took a decidedly Egyptian turn for a while back there. And it ushered in the age of star power. Huge salaries for lead actors. And the film industry itself opting for, as I mentioned before, co-production on huge budgeted films. Now, originally, the film ran for six hours, and rumours continue to circulate that one day this cut will be found, and indeed it may, but for, but for the time being, we have a four-hour cut, and perhaps the film would benefit from some additional scenes. Yet, I'm inclined to say that even a six-hour cut of 
if if it does exist and if it is found wouldn't suddenly make Cleopatra a classic by any sense of the imagination. The simple fact of the matter is it is a spectacularly average film. So that is it. I will do another one of these 70mm festivals next year. I'm going to have a good look through the um, archive to try and uh, find some more interesting picks. I hope you enjoy it. I hope that you're all getting through lockdown and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.